FOMO, the fear of missing out. We live in a time where we have more options than we've ever had before, professionally, personally, socially, and we're aware of those options because technology allows us to see what's going on in the world around us, shedding light on all the things we're missing out on. This fear of missing out is the awareness of all the options we have and the understanding that no matter what we do, we'll never be able to enjoy all of them. That new thing, that event, that party, that trip. But what if we're so worried about missing the things of this life that we're missing out on the life God has for us? A life more abundant. He gives us the time, treasure, and talents and calls us to join him. It's up to us to decide if we'll stand up and step out to be part of his story or if we'll continue to live frozen by fear of missing out. Good morning. It is good to have you here, all of you, all of you in this room, and those of you joining us in Skagit, I'm glad that you're with us in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God there. We're so glad, glad, happy to see you. And uh, those of you online, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, this last fall, my mom turned 80 years old. And in her 79th year, leading up to this, as she was entering into the ranks of the octogenarians, she made it very clear that for her 80th birthday, she wanted to go on an Alaskan cruise. It, these were obvious hints that she dropped. They weren't hints. They were just statements. This is what she wanted for her 80th birthday. And it continued on that not only did she want to go on an Alaska cruise for her 80th birthday, she wanted us three kids and our spouses to go as well. And so as we're hearing this, we're like, okay, and thinking about, you know, mom's asking for this. What was amazing is at the end of those conversations, she would say things like, and this is the present that I'm giving to myself for my 80th birthday. I'm taking us all on an Alaskan cruise, which on the first blush was like fantastic until I realized she's spending my inheritance on her 80th birthday present, whether I want to go or not. So we went, and, and in August, we went on this Alaskan cruise. I'd never been on a cruise, ever. I, now, I'd been to uh, Lummi Island and those kind of things, but I'd never been on a legitimate cruise, so I didn't know how this works. So I was going on there trying to figure these things out, learning about, as we come into these ports of call, that there are these onshore excursions you can sign up for in advance, and on board the amenities that are available to you, and all the different things, and the food thing. Wow. <laughs> wow. All you can eat whenever you want, all day long. It was just, uh, and so I've learned that one really quick, and, and all these things. And on this cruise, there was a I don't know if it was like an activities director or a cruise director, and he would come on board and he would talk about what's happening in the theater or in this, this club or this bar or this game's happening on this deck or whatever. And on this cruise, there was also a naturalist. And the naturalist, she would come on the intercom throughout the boat and she would point out different uh, geographical points of interest or geological facts that maybe we wouldn't know. And she said, throughout the cruise, I will be pointing these things out and I will keep my eyes open for certain wildlife and I'll let you know as I spot them different things that you can see and uh, so that you can, you can observe these and, and experience it. So we left Seattle and it wasn't very long. I mean, on that first day when she came on, the little tone came on and she said, this is so-and-so, you're naturalist. And I just want to let you know that I have spotted an American bald eagle on the port side of the ship. Now listen, an eagle is a majestic bird. But we live in Whatcom County, and we see eagles all the time. I saw three this last week. I mean, if you live in Whatcom County, to see an eagle is not like this 
you know, once-in-a-lifetime deal. Now, maybe if you're from some God-forsaking place like Kansas, maybe so or something like that, but... So she said, I've spotted an American bald eagle on the port side of the ship. And the passengers of this boat, they were swept in this widespread wave of FOMO. Like, I don't want to miss this. And everybody ran. It's like the whole boat starts listing to the left. Everybody runs to the left side to see this American. People left what they were doing. They left in the middle of their, their dinner half eaten. They, they left the bar with their, their drinks half drunk. I mean, their drinks were half drinking, but they were half drunk. And they, they left their children and they're half raised. They, everyone's got to see this and they've got cameras and they've got binoculars and phones and craning their neck. And I'm thinking, it's an eagle. I mean, it's not like he's a pterodactyl or a unicorn or something. So I didn't even go, but they were gripped by this fear of missing out on this experience. One source defined FOMO or the fear of missing out this way, a pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. That they're going to see something, they're going to experience something, they're going to know something, they're going to have something, they've got something that I don't have, and I've got this fear of missing out. And this fear of missing out, this FOMO can happen in all kinds of areas of your life and my life. So we're on this boat, this cruise. In fact, this is a picture of our boat, pretty good sized boat. And, um, and our room was back here. It was on about the third or fourth deck on the back end of the boat. And away we went out of Seattle on this boat. The second day of the cruise was billed as a fun day at sea. What that means is, this is going to be terribly boring. There's nothing to do or see today. So we had a fun day at sea. And in that fun day at sea, I went to the gym, got on the treadmill. I hate the treadmill, ran on the treadmill. So I I endured my fun day at sea. The third day on this boat, we still hadn't made any stops. Uh, You know, while it's a big boat, there's only so much to do. And I thought, I want to go for another run, run another five or six miles, but I hate the treadmill. I, the dreadmill. I hate the thing. So I had heard, and I knew there was a deck that people walked around, but they didn't really want you running on that because it was slippery and the, the age of some of the people there. And uh, I heard that there was a jogging track. And so I thought, I'm going to go do my miles on the jogging track. And um, the jogging track was actually on the front of the boat, which meant I had to go up six flights of stairs and the full length of the, of the boat to get there. Now, I had decided on the, the onset of this trip that I would never use the elevators for about three reasons. One, the elevators are slow. Two, the age of most of the passengers on the boat needed the elevator, and I didn't. And three, I needed to burn off as many calories as possible throughout the day because I was packing them on faster than I could burn them off. So I was going to use the stairs. So go up the six flights of stairs, the entire length of the boat. And the, and the, 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 uh, the track was here. I've got a little, I know it's grainy, but we'll zoom in and show you this track. So this is a running track. And sure enough, it was rubber asphalt. It was outside. This was going to be much better than the treadmill. And when I got up there, I thought, this is a small track. And there was a little sign here that said, this track is 1 16th of a mile. The pace that I had planned to run meant that I would circumnavigate this track every 30 to 33 seconds, and the distance that I planned to run meant that I would do that almost 100 times. It was a dizzying experience, so I began to run. And as I'm going around, just making these laps, the naturalist comes over the the intercom, and she says, just want to let you know that uh, with my binoculars, I have spotted an iceberg, and we will be passing it in about 15 to 20 minutes. Again, it will be on the port side of the boat. So as I'm running, there's this slow trickle of FOMO that's happening. 
people are starting to slowly make their way to the left side of the boat, and each 33 seconds, I would see more and more people. And again, they're looking, they've got binoculars, they're craning their neck, and each time there'd be more and more, and I found inside of me a little bit of FOMO starting to creep up as I was going around and around and around because each time there'd be more and more people. And so I thought, I I don't wanna miss this. I mean, an eagle is one thing. I've never seen an iceberg before, this is cool. So I left the track, went down the six flights of stairs, back to the back end of the boat, into our room, found my camera, up to the front of the boat, up to six flights of stairs, and then I'm thinking, this is gonna be a huge thing, it's it's an iceberg. I'm thinking Titanic, if we're going down, I wanna see this thing. I'm on the front saying, near, far, wherever. I mean, this is is amazing. uh, So I get people out of the way, get myself there ready for this iceberg, and I had, I saw my very first iceberg, and I took a picture. You wanna see the picture of this iceberg? Yeah, there it is. (laughs) And I'm thinking, that's what I was afraid I was missing out on? I've seen bigger chunks of ice come out of our freezer when we defawed or whatever every year. I mean, that that was it. See, this, this fear of missing out can change our lives, and it happens across all arenas of our life. And the fear of missing out can shape, can drive, can influence things like our priorities, the plans that we've set. It can impact our energy, our focus, our attention. It can play into our family relationships, the friends we choose, how we do our finances. It impacts our time and our schedule. And what's crazy is that sometimes the fear of missing out can even cause us to alter our values, our integrity, our ethics, and our morals, maybe even taking risks that otherwise we wouldn't take because we're afraid we're gonna miss out on something. Now the whole term FOMO, as best as anyone can find, as best that I can find in my research, can be traced back to first being stated in about 2004 in a a journal that came out of the Harvard Business School. When he mentioned this whole, this phenomena of the fear of missing out, FOMO. And in 2013, the Oxford English Dictionary added it as an actual word in the dictionary. But this isn't just in the last decade or two. When you think about this, This whole FOMO concept is one that marketers cling on to. If they can convince you that you're missing out, you'll buy their product, you'll do their, you'll you'll wash with their shampoo, you'll you'll buy, you'll go to their timeshare, whatever it might be, be, this fear of missing out. And, And could it be that it wasn't just out of necessity or greed, but FOMO was one of the things that fueled things like the gold rush. I'm gonna miss out on my opportunity. Everybody's gonna get this, I gotta go west, young man. Well, 3,000 years ago, there was this this individual who decided that he was not going to miss out. There was this fear of missing out that drove his life. His name was Solomon, and in this book that he wrote called Ecclesiastes, he states this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I am not going to miss out on anything. I am going to go after it. I, I'm going to experience it. I'm going to own it. I, I'm going to know. I'm going to. I'm going to have this, whatever it might be. You know, carpe diem, YOLO. Stay thirsty, my friends. Be the most interesting man in the world. And the whole concept of this of this fear of missing out, whatever arena it is in our life, the whole concept is avoiding a disappointed life, because we don't want to get to the end and say, "Man, we settled." There's regrets that we have. I I wish I would have. This is how it could have been. And so we we go after these things because we're afraid we might 
we might miss out on these things. And we want to not be disappointed in our life. But the truth is this. You can invest and spend your entire life with accomplishments and experiences, accumulating more, having these acquisitions, these exploits, the adventures and experience. You can, you can do all of these things and at the end still come and have a disappointed life. John Ortberg, in his book, uh, The Life you, uh, You've Always Wanted, he referenced a disappointed life, and he defines it this way. Missing the life that I was appointed by God to live. If I live any other life, it will ultimately disappoint me. Because the one who designed my life, the one who created my life, the one who redeemed my life, the one who appointed my life, ordained for my life, if I live any other way, I will ultimately be disappointed and I will miss out. And could it be, could it be that with your life and my life, with our lives, the one who is most gripped by the FOMO for our life, the fear of missing out in our life, is our Heavenly Father. The one who says, I know what I created you to experience. I know how I created you to live. And that he's the one that longs for it more than anybody. That we wouldn't miss out. That we would embrace and experience the life we were designed and appointed to live. And how often does our fear of missing out on something cause us to actually miss out on what's most important? Now, let's go back for instance, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. I mean, they've got it going on. Pretty good life, I would say. Everything they could ever want. But somewhere along the way, they get hit with a little bit of FOMO. This fear that I'm missing out on something. That maybe God's holding out on me. That maybe I know that, that maybe there's something better than what he's, uh, he's giving to me. And they believe this lie and they go for it. In their fear of missing out, it causes them to act in such a way that ultimately they miss out on what's best and they end up disappointed. Now the truth is this. Some of you may not believe that the Bible's true or that there is a God or that the Adam and Eve story even happened. But you cannot deny that the Adam and Eve story happens. It's happened in our lives. In our fear of missing out, we make a decision that later we regret. In our fear of missing out on this experience, we, we maybe even go against our own ethics, our own integrity, our own, our own values, and later we come back disappointed. That, ha that story happens again and again and again. And so we end up missing out on what's best and end up disappointed. So Jesus comes along. And Jesus comes so that we don't have to live with these regrets. That we don't have to settle and that we can experience the life that God appointed us to live. And what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't approach it with a fear tactic kind of way. In fact, he kind of comes, very rarely, very rarely, do you ever see Jesus saying, hey, you know, you, know, this, you ought to be afraid of this. I mean, it, there's a couple times, but he doesn't use fear tactics. Fear works on the short term, but not in the long term. But Jesus, in some of his most famous words, said this in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The life where you're not settling. 
the life where you won't miss out, the life where you won't be disappointed. It's not just about this fear of missing out something else, but he's saying it's an opportunity of experiencing more. And the truth about life with Jesus and the life that we've been appointed to live, that that life is far more meaningful. It is far deeper, much more significant, and ultimately more satisfying than going off on our own and all the things that we're afraid that we're going to miss out on. And he says, here's this opportunity. Now, Jesus is also very, very clear that to live this life that he's appointed us to live is not always the easiest one. It's not always the path of least resistance. Very clear. In fact, there's this little speech that Jesus does. It's, it's a concise little speech, and it, it must be pretty significant and important because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Like all three of these gospel writers say, this is important enough, we're going to put it in our gospel. And in this little speech, he starts off with a kind of a, a qualifying condition for if you want this life, the one that, that will not lead to disappointment. There's a qualifying condition, and then he follows that up with this paradoxical statement that doesn't, at first glance doesn't seem to make sense, and then he ends it with this profound rhetorical question. It's powerful, and it really speaks to this whole thing of, of uh, the FOMO in our lives, this fear of missing out. This is how it goes. Jesus said to his disciples, here's the qualifying condition. If anyone would come after me, experience this life, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then he hits him with this paradoxical statement. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And he ends with this rhetorical question that is so profound. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And it's like Jesus is just saying, hey, for just a minute, could you get out of the instant gratification mode? For just a minute, could you get out of the self-centered mode? Could you just for a minute think deeply? I want you to think beyond the here and now. And he's basically asking them, would you just run a cost-benefits analysis? In your life, the things that you're going to pursue, everything's going to cost you something. But you've got to decide, is the price that I'm paying, is it worth the benefit that I'm gaining from this? Is it commensurate? Will I end up saying, ah, buyer's remorse. I, I wish I would not have done that. Think this through and think it through with your life. So today what I want us to do is that I want us to look at an, ex a, 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 uh, an encounter that Jesus had with an individual. This is Someone that he met, this isn't a parable that he told, it's not a story that he made up. This is an actual encounter that Jesus had with another individual. And I think it illustrates not only this whole concept of this fear of missing out, this FOMO kind of mentality, but it illustrates what Jesus is saying in this paragraph. And it's found in uh, Mark chapter 10. Um, so if you have your Bible or your tablet or your phone, you want to follow along, turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we'll have the verses here so you can follow along there. Again, this is one of those stories that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them record this. We're going to be looking at Mark's, um, his account of it. And as you're turning to Mark chapter 10, let me give you a little bit of background, a little setting. Jesus has just had an encounter with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. It's not the first time. It's not the last time he has this. It's, it's kind of like, here we go again. 
because the religious leaders don't like Jesus, and they're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to put him into a corner. They're always questioning him. They're always testing him, and he always comes back with either a question or a statement that just confounds them, and they walk away like, ah, it didn't work again. And so this happens again, and you can imagine, I would think that Jesus is like, really, guys, are we doing this again? And this frustration, because these are the guys who everyone is looking to, to as like, these are the ones who are close to God, and yet they seem to be the farthest from God. They know more scripture than anybody. They understand the laws and the commandments, but they're farthest from God. So Jesus encounters them and has another one of those little, um, you know, episodes with them. Right on the heels of that, he comes, and there are all these children, these families that are bringing children to him. And, and I just, I've got to imagine, as these children are coming to Jesus, they're not crying, saying, like, keep me away from the man with the beard and the feathered hair. I, I think that look, they're probably, there's this laughter, and there's this joy, and he's loving them and hugging them, and, and, and there's all these kids, and Jesus is with them, and they're all singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Because look, I don't know, there's no Bible to tell me so yet. So, so they're singing this, and the parents are loving this, Except the disciples aren't. Disciples are not happy about this at all. In fact, they're singing a different song, the way my friend Tom Doherty used to sing it. Red and yellow, black and blue, they all belong in the zoo. You know, get these kids away. And Jesus said, no, 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 bring these kids here. So Jesus is there with these kids, and he's loving them, and he's putting his hands on them, he's praying for them, he's blessing them. It's an amazing time. So all the kids go away. Now, the Pharisees are done, the kids have been blessed, the families are happy, Jesus is getting ready to leave, and now he encounters this individual. There's a, a, a man that comes up to him. In all three Gospels, no name is mentioned of who this is. A little side note, and I wish we had time. This, this kind of stuff I find interesting. There are theories about who this young man might be. One of the theories is that it's, it's a young man named Saul from Tarsus who is under the tutelage of Gamaliel, who is one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin, one of the key teachers of the Pharisees. And there's reasons that people think this might be a young Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. There's another theory that this young man is a young man named Joseph, who's, who's from the, uh, the, the, the island of, uh, of Cyprus, and he's a Levite. And later, you see him show up in Acts chapter 4, the apostles give him a nickname. His nickname is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and there's reason to think that it could be him. There are other people that think this young man is a young man named John Mark who's actually writing this gospel and that he's writing himself into the story. Now, there's theories and there's reasons for all those theories, and actually it's not really that pertinent to what we're talking about today. I just find it fascinating. All three gospel writers, not one of them mentions who it is. We, over the years, have come to know this man as the rich young ruler. None of the gospel writers call him the rich young ruler. In fact, that's kind of a, um, a composite of the three gospel accounts. Matthew says that he's young. No one else says he's young. Luke says he's a ruler. No one else says he's a ruler. All three of them say he's rich. So here he is, this rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, we'll start at verse 17. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now, remember or keep in mind that in the first century, any man of age or prominence or dignity would never run. Running was for children. It was not for men who were dignified. 
This man comes running up to Jesus, and maybe he's running up because he sees a window of opportunity. Maybe he's been waiting for this moment. Maybe he has seen when Jesus is sparring with the Pharisees, and he says, okay, I don't want to be a part of that conversation because I know how those always end. And maybe he sees when Jesus is talking with the children, and he sees that, that when the, the disciples are trying to disrupt that whole event, Jesus gets indignant with them. He says, okay, okay, leave Jesus and the kids alone. Don't want to be a part of that. Now the Pharisees are gone. The kids are on their way home. Here's this opportunity. He runs up to him. Maybe he has this sense of urgency, this eagerness, this deep desire. I've got to see this man, Jesus. Or maybe he's just a procrastinator and he's always late to everything. Probably not. But anyway, this could be a possibility. He runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees. <laughs> Again, pardon me for this. I think about Judas going, there he goes. Okay, so, but that's probably not what happened. But I just like to think about those kind of things. So he falls to his knees. When he falls to his knees, either this is kind of like a show, it's, it's, a, it's a sham, it's, it's this ruse, he's pretending like he's humbled and whatever, or it genuinely is an act of unbelievable respect. So here this guy comes, he runs to Jesus, and he falls on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, his very question sets him apart from the way that the Pharisees would approach Jesus. If the Pharisees came to Jesus, they would never come to him and say, good teacher. They would say something like, if you are a good teacher. It has kind of just an implication that we don't really think you are. And their questions to Jesus were always trying to, to peg Jesus, to, to, to trap Jesus. I mean, think about the questions that they would ask to Jesus. What do you say is the most important commandment? Not what is, but what do you say? Or in John chapter 8, the commandments, the law of Moses commands that we should stone this woman. What do you say? Or what authority do you speak with? And they're always pointing this on Jesus. This man comes to him, says, good teacher, what do I do? He puts the question on himself. What must I do? I'm not trying to trap you. I'm not trying to test you here. I genuinely want to know. I ran here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like you see this, this good picture of the FOMO in his life. I don't want to miss out on eternal life. I don't want to miss out on this life that I was appointed to live. And maybe Maybe he's heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. Maybe he's Je heard Jesus talk about things of eternity. Maybe he's heard Jesus talk about these children and how unless we become like little children, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he does not want to miss out on what Jesus is offering. So he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't want to miss out on this. And Jesus, in his wisdom, doesn't just give him a direct answer but follows up with his own question. And Jesus asked him this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. To which we might say, why would Jesus say this? Because Jesus, Jesus says he is God, right? Like I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But why, why is he saying this as if he's not? Notice, Jesus does not deny that he's a good teacher. Jesus does not deny that he is divine. He simply wants to know, why do you call me that? And I wonder if there's some reasons for that. 
I wonder if Jesus is questioning this young man who runs up with this eager desire to know about eternal life that maybe, maybe he has seen and understood. Maybe it's been revealed to him. Do you really think that I am divine? Do you really think that I am God? Do you believe that I am the Messiah? Or more likely, even in asking this question, Jesus is answering the young man's question by saying, if you're interested in inheriting eternal life and you think at all that it's possible by being good enough, no one's good enough except God. So if you think by your efforts, if you think by keeping the commandments, if you think by following the rules, if you think by putting out enough uh, uh, you know, energy and, and, and being good enough, you'll never be good enough. So he asks this question, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father, except God. And before the guy can answer, he goes to the commandments. Now, we think about commandments very often. We think about the Ten Commandments. There were actually 613 commandments in the Torah. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they knew all 613 of them. Even the common people may not have had all 613 memorized, but they knew there was a lot. But they did know the Ten Commandments. And Jesus comes to the Ten Commandments, and, and you may be familiar with this. The Ten Commandments are really broken down into two sets. The first four commandments talk directly about our relationship vertically with God. You know, you shall uh, have no other gods before you. Do not um, take the Lord's name in vain. You shall make no graven images. Remember the Sabbath day and keep them holy. All of these are our relationship with God, this vertical relationship. The last six all have to do with how we treat one another. The horizontal relationship. That's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets are hung on these two. So Jesus comes to the Ten Commandments, and he says this. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You read this verse, and some of you right now, you've observed there's two or three things that, that like just send up these little flags of question marks. It's kind of interesting. First of all, this young man's asking about eternal life. Jesus refers to the Ten Commandments, but completely skips the first four. Completely skips these, you know, vertical commandments about our relationship with God. You think, what's up with that? You would think that's the most important thing. And maybe, maybe Jesus is saying, Listen, it's not just about your devotion to God. It's about how you live your life, how your faith plays out in the relationships around you. Another thing you may notice is that when Jesus gives these last six, that they're out of order. You'd think Jesus would know this. They're out of order, and number 10 is missing, and another one is put in there. Like this, do not defraud. That's not a part of those 10. And what happened to number 10 where it's talking about do not covet? Why would Jesus do that? I don't know. <laughs> but here could be one reason. That maybe he knows this young man is so excited about how he's kept the law and the Ten Commandments. He's kind of just saying, do you even know the Ten Commandments? If I mixed them up, would you even notice that? Uh, we were at a gathering about two years ago. It was a, after like an Easter, uh, it was an Easter dinner, a lot of people around. And, and at this dinner, one of the ladies talked about how she and her friend uh, decided that they were going to see how many of the Ten Commandments they could name. And they could only come up with about six of them. 
So it began this conversation around the table, and finally they all looked at me and said, well, so what are they, Pastor Bob? And I'm put on the spot. All Ten Commandments, everybody's looking at me. It's like, man, if I knew that I had to give a sermon, it would take up an offering at this thing. But anyway, so as we're sitting there at the table, I go through, and I come up with nine, and I'm missing one. And I go through it again, and I come up with nine, but I'm missing one, and I'm like, what am I missing here? I know that I've got the four. I've got five of the last six. I can't, can't, and it just bugged me. Not so much that I'm going to look bad in front of these people. Oh, our pastor doesn't even know the Ten Commandments. That's a different story. But, but it's just like, what was that one? So I got home and got my Bible, pulled it out, and went through it. I'm like, oh, thou shalt not commit adultery. I ought to remember that one. That's a good one to remember. Hold on to that one. Maybe Jesus is just saying, hey, do you really even know the Ten Commandments? In fact, next time you ask someone or you're in a conversation and someone's trying to justify themselves, say, hey, I keep the Ten Commandments. You know what you ought to do is say, could you tell me what those ten are? That'll be a lot of fun for you, but not for them. Because guarantee you they won't get all ten. Anyway, so he, just, he says this. He puts this out for this guy. These, ten, these commandments. He says, you know the commandments, all these things. Now look at the young man's response. He said, teacher, he doesn't say good teacher now. So I, I, that one didn't work for me. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Here is a little side note. Here is one of the reasons why some people think this was a young Apostle Paul. Because Saul said in Philippians 3, as far as legalistic righteousness, I have been faultless. Okay, anyway. So he says, I, I've kept these since I was a boy. Now, you, you look at that verse, and you start thinking, man, he's kind of smug, kind of self-righteous. He's filled with a lot of pride. You know, uh, yeah, I've kept the commandments. But what if, what if this wasn't a smugness? What if this wasn't a self-righteousness? What if this wasn't a pride statement? What if this was actually a statement that revealed his sincerity, the seriousness at which he took the law of God? the devout nature at which he approached it. What if this is saying, listen, I, I have, my whole life, I've wanted to obey God. I've wanted to honor him. I've wanted to, to, to be right with him. I wanted to please him. I, I've known the laws and I've kept them. I, I've, I've dedicated my whole life to that because I genuinely want to honor and please God. Maybe this isn't a self-righteous, pharisaical, pride-filled statement. Maybe it's this revealing of his heart is, I so love God. I just want to do what's right. And then this, this phrase out of verse 21 is so amazing to me. It says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, he said, well, Jesus loves everybody, doesn't he? Yes. But this phrase doesn't happen with every encounter of every person that Jesus uh, sees or meets. There's something here. And this is why some people think this might have been Mark, the one who wrote this book, because if you've ever read the book of John, in John's gospel, he always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And maybe Mark's saying, you aren't the only one he loves. I'm going to write myself into this story as well. Anyway, Jesus looked at him, and he sees this young man who's got his whole life ahead of him. And it's like he's got the world by the tail. This young man has either experienced early success in business and in life because he's wealthy. We'll find that out in a minute. Or maybe, maybe he's inherited all this wealth. That's why he wants to inherit the kingdom of God. Regardless, on a worldly standpoint, he's got everything taken care of financially. He is set in that arena. On top of that, 
He's devout in his pursuit after God. He has kept the commandments. He knows them. He, he has lived since he was a little boy trying to please God. And because he's kept those commandments, he has treated other people in a way that what's not to like, the relational uh, situation. He has honored his mother and father. He's not defrauded others. He's not lied. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't coveted. The way he, everyone loves, he is that guy. He's got it all going on. And maybe Jesus sees this young man who has everything that you could ever think he could ever want. And inside Jesus' heart, he does not want him to miss out. That there's this fear of him missing out. That he will settle for less. That eventually he will be disappointed. Because all that he has and all that he says and all that he, all that he uh, justifies himself with is what he himself has done or acquired. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, just one. And before we go on in this story, the next line, I believe, has been taken out of context to say some things that in this setting, Jesus was not trying to say. You hear me all the way out in this. This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus makes this statement. And Jesus says to him, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And this has been used to try at times to get people to give more money to whatever it might be. And this has been used at times to try and convince people that they should be involved in, in eradicating world poverty. Listen to me. Listen to me. We have been blessed in order to bless. Jesus makes it clear we are to care for the poor. The scripture says this over and over again. I believe that, as we talked about today, every family ought to be sponsoring a child or more. I mean, we are called to do that. But I don't think this is what Jesus is trying to get through to this young man of, of saying, listen, can you imagine the kind of impact you could have in eradicating the poverty in this part of the country? That's not it at all. He, he's saying, listen, all that you have, just sell it and just give it to the poor. That, we'll deal with that later. Just give it to the poor. I think he's trying to say something else to this man. Not just about you ought to care for the poor. Because Jesus is concerned that this man will miss out on the life that he was appointed to live. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then Jesus doesn't just say, you know, kind of like roll the dice and hope for the best. He says, let me tell you why. And you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Remember, how did this conversation even start? Why is this conversation even happening in the first place? Because the young man is asking about eternity, right? He's asking about life beyond the days here on this earth. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you really want to know about, like setting up treasures for yourself in heaven, that's how you're going to get this. And this invitation to experience more than all of your money could ever buy. Come and follow me. And I look at that and I'm thinking, here's this guy. And he's got this invitation to walk with Jesus. To be on the front end of this kingdom that Jesus is bringing to earth. To be a part of the Bible. And I'm like saying, take door number two. And dude, go for this one. And at this point, this young man has a decision that he has to make. And he's torn. There's this fear of missing out. 
He's come because there's this fear of missing out on eternal life, but he's got this grip of this fear of missing out on what's, what's going on here. And Jesus says, give up this to get this. And he's gripped now with this fear of stepping out in faith. In order to do what Jesus has said, it's going to take a lot of trust. It's going to take a lot of faith. And it may mean losing everything, even though Jesus says, you're going to have treasures in heaven, and you get to come and follow me and be a part of me, and you will have eternal life. You know, and when we're in those situations where we're not really sure what to do, and especially when it says, ah, oh, but this is an opportunity, but I'm not really sure if I should, uh, Andy Stanley has this, this question that he says, we ought to ask when we're not really sure what we should do. We ought to ask ourselves this question. What story do I want to tell? What do I want to tell my kids? What do I want to tell my grandchildren? What's the story that I want told about me? When I was in this experience, when I had this opportunity and there was this, this thing that I thought, oh, I don't want to miss out on that, but it could ruin my marriage, it could ruin my reputation, it could destroy my family. What story do I want them telling of me? Here's this opportunity, and it could be very lucrative. Yeah, I'm going to have to compromise just a little bit, and, and it, and it might, might kind of change my reputation. What story do I want to tell? Will I be proud of telling my grandchildren that? What do I want them saying about me? And here's this young man, and he ought to ask, what story do I want to tell, and what story do I want to have Bob preaching about in 2,000 years? What do I want them to say about me? And he's gripped by this fear of stepping out. Verse 22, unfortunately, at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. The irony is that the very thing that he's afraid of missing out on, the very thing that's supposed to bring success and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness, causes him to be sad. His fear of missing out on this causes him to miss out on the life that God appointed for him and lands him in disappointment and regret. A little side note, if this was Saul or if this was Barnabas or if this was Mark, somewhere down the road, they turned it around. But we don't know. This man may have spent the rest of his life in the fear of missing out on all this world has to offer him and completely missing out on the life that he was appointed to live. Now, after this, you, you notice he's not the only one sad. I think Jesus is sad because he doesn't want this young man. He loves him. And Jesus doesn't beg him to stay, doesn't bargain with him. Okay, 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 not, don't sell it all. Sell 75%. Or 51 49? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't try to manipulate him. He doesn't, doesn't put this guilt trip on him. Hey, with all that money, young ruler, why don't you buy popsicles because it's going to be awfully hot where you spend eternity. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He says, I'm offering you the opportunity to live the life that God designed, created, and appointed you to live. And it, it, this conversation ensued after he walks away with his disciples. Remember, his disciples are there. They've got, they're hearing this whole conversation. They're watching the whole thing uh, play out. So there's this question that kind of comes to Jesus, who could ever be saved? And Jesus says, hey, listen, with, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then, at the end of all that, as you would expect, Peter speaks up. Because Peter can never have any dead space, ever. So Peter speaks up, verse 28, he says, Peter said, 
whoa, whoa, we left everything to follow you. To which I'm thinking Jesus is going, yeah, Pete, you have an old rowboat and a net that you're always having to repair. You didn't leave that much. In fact, it's still on the shores of Galilee, and you're going to be back in that boat in a few weeks. But he doesn't say that because he's a gracious, gracious man. And Jesus responds to Peter and says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. The very thing the young man was asking about. And I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is, listen, Peter, you're not going to regret this. You won't be sorry. You're not missing out on life. You won't be disappointed. This is the life you were appointed to live, and this is the story that you get to tell. And think about it 2,000 years later. What Peter got to experience, what God did through him, he wasn't perfect. But man, it impacted generations. And this other man remains unnamed, and the last we hear of him is he is a sad, poor, rich, poor man. Now, great story. But I think we need to look in the mirror. And we need to go back to verse 21, where Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. And instead of just leaving this with the people in the Bible... Maybe you and I need to ask in a time of honesty before the Lord, what's my one thing? God, what is it that I'm holding on to because I'm afraid of missing out? If I let go of this, if I pursue this, if I give this, if I do this, if I, that I'm going to miss out. And Jesus is saying, there's one thing you lack. What is that one thing that I'm holding on to, that one thing that I won't surrender that one thing that I won't step out in faith on, the one thing that I won't trust you for, I'm afraid of missing out. And Jesus says, I love you. Do you trust me? There's nothing good for you outside of the will of the Father. What's that one thing? Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian talked to us and preached about entering into 2018 with open hands and a life of surrender. To say, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to walk this way. Years ago, Jim Elliott, um, whose life ended tragically when he was 28 years old, he made this statement that he's best known for. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. And my challenge for each one of us this week, as we go into this week, is to spend some time with Jesus knowing that he loves us and wants the best for us and to seek this life that he has ordained, he's appointed as he has designed us and created us to live and honestly say, Jesus, is there one thing? Some of you right now know what that one thing is. You know, you've been holding on to it. You've been fighting or you've been resisting the Holy Spirit for years. You know what that one thing is. Maybe some of you need to say, is there anything? I want to hold it with an open hand. I don't want my fear of missing out cause me to miss out and land me in a life of disappointment. 
We're going to close with a song. It talks about the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. And in the bridge, it talks about how, God, you have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. When we understand that this loving Heavenly Father, who's the infinite God of the universe, all-knowing and altogether good, has appointed us to live our lives, to come and say, nothing, nothing will rival that in my life, to live with an open hand. Stand as we sing this, and then I'll close this in prayer.